We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Oh, okay. Um, hello, everyone. All right, wicked. So today we're going to be looking... Uh, yeah, I said wicked. I just heard someone say he said it. It's a bad habit, sorry. Um, excellent, fantastic, phenomenal. Um, so we're going to be looking at chapter 14 of 1 Kings today. Now, some of us maybe have heard every, every sermon on this. Maybe some of us are here for the first time or have missed a few. So I thought, let me try and do a recap at this point, just to try and get everyone up to uh, the same stage. So let's start from Genesis. Okay, everyone get comfortable. Um, so God has a plan. His plan is to fill the earth with his glory. And he, cho- he chose to do that through human beings, who he's made in his image, and he wants to rule the world through. But humans quickly failed. They decided to choose evil, self-interest, acted short-sighted, and essentially headed for self-destruction. But God makes this promise right at the beginning that a child will rise up and one day defeat sin and evil in the world. God then raises up an individual called Abraham, from whose family God says that this child will come from. He promised to give the children of Abraham, the Israelites, a great land and nation. But similarly to the humans before him, the Israelites' persistent disobedience and desire to worship other gods and and go away from God gets in the way of fulfilling the promise that, that God has. Abraham and his descendants lie, cheat, kill each other. I mean, it's, it's pretty bad stuff. And eventually, the Israelites end up enslaved, exiled in Egypt, and they're slaves. But God raises up Moses, who will rescue these Israelites, and, and the plan is to take them into the promised land. They're invited into a covenant relationship with God, like a deep, deep, deep promise. But as the story progresses, the Israelites fail. They turn away. They do their own thing. Moses was good, but he eventually fails. He wasn't good enough. But there's still this promise. There's this promise that one day God will raise up someone who will defeat sin. God raises then up a guy called Joshua. Like Moses, he's good in many ways, but he eventually fails too. And the Israelites fall into more trouble. But God promises that something will change one day. But the Israelites persist. They do wrong, do all sorts of craziness. There's then a period of like judges who uh, rule over the Israelites. But eventually, the Israelites are like, we want a king. We want a king. Just like the other nations have got, we want a king. God tells them, I don't think you do want a king. But they're like, no, 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 we do, we do, we do. So God gives them what they ask for. And as we've seen already, those of us that have been here, there's some good, there's a lot of bad. Uh, So the first king is Saul, then David, and then we arrive at the book of One Kings, where David is essentially on his deathbed. I could get the PowerPoint back up. So we're just going to watch a short video, which now, so we've kind of done up to Kings, we've done a little quiz. This video will... uh, kind of show us where we've got up to in the story of Kings and where we'll be going. 
The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. The book opens with two chapters about the kingdom passing from the aging David to his son Solomon. And David's final words to Solomon, they're very similar to those of Moses and Joshua and Samuel to the people. It's a call to remain faithful to the commands of the covenant and to give allegiance to the God of Israel alone. But David's words ring somewhat hollow here because David and Solomon then go on to conspire how they're going to consolidate this new kingdom through a whole series of political assassinations. It's not off to a great start. Solomon's brightest moment comes when he asks God for wisdom to lead Israel, and he even completes David's dream to make a temple for the God of Israel. Here the story actually stops and describes the design of this temple in detail, just like the tabernacle design in the Torah. There's all these gold and jewels and depictions of angels and fruit trees. It's all symbolism echoing back to the Garden of Eden. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's presence dwells with his people. But no sooner does Solomon finish the temple that he makes some really horrible choices and the kingdom falls apart. He starts marrying the daughters of other kings, hundreds of them, for political alliances. And then he adopts their gods and introduces the worship of those gods into Israel. Solomon then accumulates huge amounts of wealth. He builds a huge army. He even institutes slave labor for all of his building projects. Now, if you go back to the Torah and look at God's guidelines for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, Solomon is breaking every one. So by the time that he dies, Solomon resembles Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, more than he does his father David. The next section of the book opens with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, acting just like his father. It's a very sad story of greed and lust for power. He tries to increase taxes for slave labor. And under the leadership of Jeroboam, the northern tribes reject this. They rebel and secede and form their own rival kingdom. And so now in the story, you have the southern kingdom, Judah, centered in Jerusalem with kings from the line of David. And now this new northern kingdom called Israel, whose capital will be Samaria eventually. Jeroboam also goes on to build two new temples to compete with Solomon's temple in the south. He puts a golden calf in each one to represent the God of Israel. The connection to Exodus 32 and the golden calf, it's all quite explicit. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. 
Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets. Cool. So we're at uh, chapter 14, so a little insight into what's coming up next. A lot of bad kings. Um, but today, we'll be looking at 1 Kings chapter 14. So at this point, just like that video showed, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two parts. So you've got the kingdom of Israel in the north, which is the 10 tribes of the original 12. Now that's led by a guy called Jeroboam, who was kind of one of Solomon's uh, advisors, but God raised him up to go against Solomon. Then you've got the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And sometimes the Bible doesn't like to make it easy for us. I mean, the names are confusing enough as it is, but you've got Jeroboam and Rehoboam, okay? So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, the leader of Israel in the north. And chapter 14 kind of is split into what happens in the northern kingdom, then what happens in the southern kingdom. So we'll get started. I'm going to invite Jacob up to read. Sorry, here's a picture. So yeah, Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And Jacob's going to read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 14. Ahijah's prophecy against Jeroboam. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Go, disguise yourself so that you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over this people. Take ten loaves of bread with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said and went to Ahijah's house in Shiloh. Now Ahijah could not see. His sight was gone because of his age. But the Lord had told Ahijah, Jeroboam's wife is coming to ask you about her son, for he is ill. And you are to give her such and such an answer. When she arrives, she will, she will pretend to be someone else. Thank you, Jacob. Okay, cool. So at this point in the story, Jeroboam has clearly turned his back on what God has instructed him to do and the way in which God has instructed him to go. So a couple of chapters back in chapter 11, this same prophet that we've just heard mentioned, Ahijah, comes and gives Jeroboam a message and he says, he really gives him a warning, you know, walk in the way that God has for you and you'll be good. But if you don't, we'll have to see. He's also not taken the word from the man of God in the previous chapter that we saw last week seriously. He's really decided, I'm going to do my own thing. He's set up a whole alternative system of worship, and he's now leading his people away from God. But suddenly we get to chapter 14, and his son's ill. So he's like, right, I need to get my wife to go and see that same prophet, Ahijah, who told me I'd be king. He's the one that told me he'll know what's going to happen to our son. There's a few points I want to pull out of just this first little bit. So firstly, Jeroboam sends his wife, go to Shiloh, that's where the prophet is. He goes to send his wife to do something that really he should be doing. 
Why is he sending his wife? Is, is he scared? Um, does he know that he's messed up and doesn't want to face the consequences? I'm not really sure, but whatever the reason, it's clear that he's kind of taking the coward's way out. He's sort of sending his wife to do something that he's probably a bit, bit nervous about doing. He's abdicating his position. He's stepping out of what is his to do and sending his wife. And I get the sense that he's clearly more concerned with his own kind of self-preservation and, and protection than actually doing what the right thing is. I reckon he's not, going, he's not willing to go and face the prophet himself because he knows that he's messed up, that he's turned away from God. And he doesn't want to be confronted on it. Maybe if he'd gone to the prophet himself, he would have been able to repent. They would have been able to, you know, be resolution. And we haven't heard what the prophet says to him yet, or says to his wife, sorry. But spoiler alert, it's not good, okay? He doesn't have good things to say. Maybe if Jeroboam went, there could have been a different outcome. And as I read this, I think, wow, what a weak man. What's he sending his wife for? Surely, if there's something that he felt to do, he should have done it. How could he abdicate his position? How could he just step back from taking a responsibility to do something that he feels to do? But then I'm challenged because I think of all the times that I've done that. Not necessarily sending my wife, although there probably are some examples of that, but we won't focus on that. But all the times where I've felt that I've been given something to do by God, and I haven't done it. I've abdicated my position. And as I was thinking about this, because I was really challenged, because I was just reading it and thinking, wow, this is not a good guy we're talking about. And I actually felt challenged because I thought, ooh. I've done this before. So I'll just share a quick example. So about 10 years ago, um, I was doing like a, a counseling course, like a counseling qualification. It was like an evening class. And this counseling class was quite interesting. I was doing it as part of the job that I had at the time. Um, but it was a lot of interesting characters in the room. And suddenly I realized that this counseling class, like this training to become counselors, kind of was like a group counseling session. So everyone would come and you'd have, you'd have a check-in. I've never checked in before um, in this way, but I learned. And basically what happened was people would go around the room and just say how they were feeling. And I've always considered myself a fairly open book, but every week I was just like, yeah, I'm good. Whereas everyone else was kind of really sharing what was going on. And it was quite a lot. I was about 10 years younger than anyone else in the room. And I just remember thinking every week, oh my gosh, people are really going through a lot here. There was one guy particularly who each week we would come, he would share what was going on for him. And he was just having a rough time. He was dealing with an eating disorder. He was really struggling with his mental health. There were relationships that he wanted to see rebuilt, um, that it wasn't happening in the way that it was. And one week, probably about five or six weeks in, it was a year course, I felt God say to me, tell this guy that I love him. And as, as I heard that, I kind of got excited because I was like, yeah, God, God loves this guy. I'm hearing each week just how difficult and how sad and how low he is. If he knew that God loved him, that could change things. So I got quite excited. Then I got quite scared because then I was like, oh, but I'm actually going to have to tell this guy, you know, he was about 15 years older than me. I kind of got the sense that he was maybe an atheist. Um, so I thought, okay, well, God, you've spoken. You'll make, you'll make a time where it's appropriate. 
And it's definitely not appropriate in a class. You know, this is a group session. There's like 15 of us. I can't do it. Um, next week, I got put in a pair with him. And I was like, well, we've, we've been given a task. Do you know what I mean? I've got, I've got to make sure we get the task done. Don't want to fall behind in the class. No, 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 no. I, I, need, a, I, need, a better, I need a better time to do it. Then, like, the next week, I was going to the car park to my car, and suddenly it was just me and him in a lift. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this would be a really good time to tell him. But I didn't. I chickened out. I, I abdicated my position. I, I didn't do the thing that I felt God had given me to do. And in the end, I think the, the, the class ended, and I, I probably tried to, like, find him on Facebook or something and message him, oh, by the way, God loves you, but... As I think about that, I get so frustrated with myself because I'm like, God spoke to me so clearly. I felt that he'd spoke to me. I knew that he'd given me something to do. But because I was more interested ultimately in myself, in the way that I looked, in not, I could say that I didn't want to make him feel awkward, but really I didn't want to make myself feel awkward. I didn't do what God had given me to do. And I think there's a challenge for us all. Are there places where we're maybe abdicate in our own position where we're not stepping into the thing that God has, has for us to do. And I don't just want to stand here and say, you need to make sure if God speaks that you do. I mean, I think obeying God is really, 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 really important. Don't get me wrong. But what, what frustrates me about myself in that story is that there was that initial sense of joy when I felt that God had spoken to me. But as time went by, I started to carry it like a burden, like, like it was a really horrible chore that I had to do and I think God's saying to us and, and what he was saying to me then is hey Nick I want to partner with you let's go on an adventure yeah you might make yourself look stupid I don't know how that guy would have responded there was no guarantee that he was gonna you know hug me and, and give his life to God there and then that wasn't for me to know but I had a part to play and I didn't and I think wow I don't want to be like that. I thank God that he's so gracious and forgiving that he's not punishing me. He's not, he's not, he's not put me now in a, in a box of like, okay, I'm done with Nick. He's so good that he's given me loads and loads of opportunities since then. And, and I've been able to, to take in different situations. But I just want to challenge us. As I read this and I think, wow, how could Jeroboam get it so wrong? I think God's speaking to us about, is there any areas where God's given us something to do or say or, or a way to be? The amazing thing is, if God talks to you, if he's telling you or if he's asking you to do something, he's also going to empower you to be able to do it. And that was, the, that was the part that I missed. I just thought, oh, well, now I've got to make a fool of myself. But that's the first thing that I want to pull out. Are we abdicating our position? Ask God to search you. Is there, any, is there any area where I'm not being or doing or saying what you've given me to do? Next point. So he tells her to go. Then he tells her to disguise herself. Now, I just think this is really, really strange. He's sending his wife to a prophet, to someone that he's had firsthand experience of being able to, to see things beyond like, what human eyes can see. And he tells his wife to disguise herself. Who's he trying to deceive? Is he trying to deceive Ahijah, the prophet? Is he trying to deceive maybe... The people that he's led astray, maybe he doesn't want them to see that he's, he's sending his wife back to the man of God because he's led them all away from God. Either way, there's an effort to deceive here and a lack of integrity. And it seems to me that he's just not humble enough to admit to God, 
I've messed up. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm really going the wrong way here. It's like he's trying to manipulate the situation, manipulate it to get what he wants out of it. He wants to know what's going to happen to his son. And he's going to someone who he knows God speaks through. But he's still trying to kind of manipulate and make it work for him. It's like he's acknowledging God's power, but he's not submitting. He's not submitting to God's power. And again, I feel challenged. Is there any time where you've maybe had a plan or something that you want to do, and then you think, oh, let me just, let me make sure I get the green light from God. But really, you've already made your decision. Anyone ever been in that position? Just me. Okay. All right. Well, this is a, an open counseling session, just like I was talking to you about. Um, but I think the challenge here is for us to say, God, I want you to set the agenda. Not my will be done, but yours. And not just kind of thinking we can go to God to, to rubber stamp the things that we really want to do. God has good, good, good things for us. Way better than we could ever imagine or manipulate or engineer. He has good, good things to us. And Jeroboam, he's just not seeing it. He's trying to manipulate a situation. And we'll see quite soon how that, how that works out for him. Now, the final point I want to just draw from here is, so like I just said, Ahijah the prophet, he couldn't see. His sight was gone because of his age. But then it says, but the Lord had told Ahijah. God still speaks to Ahijah. And I think, wow. If I was Ahijah, I might have felt like, I've done my bit. I'm blind now. Just let me, just, just let me be in peace. You know, I'm, I'm no good. I'm no good. And I think, wow, are there ways in which we kind of disqualify ourselves from partnering with God? Maybe it's health or age or ability or uh, personality type or finances. All things that just, oh, these things, it stops me from being able to partner with God. I think the amazing thing about God is that he often doesn't just work around the things that we might see as like flaws or um, weaknesses in ourselves. Often he works through those things. Ahijah can't see. He's literally blind. But God gives him the ability to see beyond what is, what is uh, material. And I just think that's such an amazing picture of who God is. He is the one that is, he's made us. He knows where we maybe don't have the, the strengths and the weaknesses and that kind of thing. And he's still saying, hey, I want to partner with you. And that's what God's really been speaking to me about. Jeroboam just isn't, isn't seeing it. Isaiah 46 verse 4 says, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. God doesn't put us kind of in a retirement home or rule us out because we can't really do something. He doesn't want to leave us on the outside looking in on his plans and purposes. We can choose to disqualify ourselves, but that's not what God has for us. Jacob. So we're going to read now verses 6 to 16. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, 
who kept my command and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal. You have, you have aroused my anger and turned your back on me. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. I will cut off from Jeroboam every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in, the, in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried, because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Even now, this is beginning to happen, and the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good from this good land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them beyond the river Euphrates. I don't even have to say that. Euph yep. Because they aroused the Lord's anger by making Asherah poles, and he will give Israel up because of the sins Jeroboam has committed and has caused Israel to commit. So a real uplifting message uh, that God has for Jeroboam's wife. Why this pretense? So as soon as Jeroboam's wife walks in to see the prophet, she hasn't even said anything, nothing's happened, and he just says, hey, wife of Jeroboam, here you are. Why this pretense? Do you ever come with a pretense? Do you ever kind of feel like you need to make yourself more presentable to, to God or, or to other people? Maybe just hide the the parts of yourself that you don't really want people to see. God sees us. He sees us at the bottom, and he loves us to the heavens. That is the reality. He tells us to come as we are. We can't trick him with an act or a, or a pretense or some sort of disguise. But we don't have to. That's, that's the great bit. We don't have to present ourselves as anything other than we are to God. He sees us. Now, that's probably quite scary for a lot of us because we really know ourselves and we know those parts that maybe we are able to hide from other people. But actually, at that point that we're able to say, well, God sees it all. He knows me so intimately. That can be the beginning of freedom, of stepping into exactly who God is calling us to be. Why this pretense? So then in verse 6, he says, I've been sent to you with bad news. Now, Jeroboam's poor wife must have been so confused. She thinks she's traveled all the way to him, but actually, Ahijah the prophet's been sent to her with bad news. And I think that just, that just paints a picture of God. When I first came to him, he was there waiting. He was there waiting at the doorstep just for me to, to welcome him in. Now, the bad news is, Jeroboam's son will die. Jeroboam's kingdom will collapse. But we live in the reality of the good news. 
And the good news is this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we came to Jesus, that first, for those of us that have made that decision, we came because he came for us long before we ever even considered him. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Jesus has come to us with such good news. His sacrifice that allows us to enter into relationship with the living God. Some of us have chosen to make that decision and follow God, and some of us haven't. But there's an invitation there. So like I say, the message isn't good. Your son's going to die. I'm going to bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam. Ultimate destruction awaits him. But we do need to remember, it didn't need to be like this for Jeroboam. God even warned him using Ahijah, the same prophet, in chapter 11. In 1 Kings 11, verse 38, it says, If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. But Jeroboam neglected this, decided to set up his own system of worship, build his own golden calves, all the things that were so clear that he shouldn't do, and he's going to end up facing the consequences. Maybe if Jeroboam hadn't abdicated his position, had gone to see Ahijah the prophet himself, humbled himself and repented, maybe there would have been a different outcome. I don't know, but you see in, a, in another book in the Bible, in the story of Jonah, Jonah brings a word to the city of Nineveh. It's a very short word, but he's basically saying he comes to tell the city, you lot are going to be destroyed. Within 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. But the way in which the people of Nineveh respond, they repent. They're like, oh my gosh, we need to get right with God. And God doesn't actually do what he said. He spares Nineveh. But Jeroboam doesn't have that humble heart. So when maybe we are confronted with something it can, that isn't necessarily right within ourselves, it can feel not very nice, horrible, a bit like, oh, why is this person saying this? But it's actually an invitation to get right with God, to come into a new reality of who God calls us to be. Jeroboam, he refuses to receive this, and therefore, sadly, his fate is sealed. So Jacob, if you can just come read verses 17 to 20, this is the final part of Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. Then Jeroboam's wife got up and left and went to Terza. As soon as she stepped over the threshold of the house, the boy died. They buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, as the Lord had said through his servant, the prophet Ahijah. The other events of Jeroboam's reign, his wars and how he ruled, are written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. He reigned for 22 years and then rested with his ancestors, and Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. Cool. So, not going to dwell on it, but an interesting fact is there was good in Jeroboam's son. God saw good in his son, and he buried him. Everyone else got eaten by the dogs, apparently. Uh, and Jeroboam's son, Nadab, succeeds him as king. So that's the northern kingdom, really, really great and uplifting. Let's see what happens uh, in the southern kingdom with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, verses 21 to 24. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. 
He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Cool. So Rehoboam's kingdom just ends up becoming a replica of the world that God's calling them to stand out from. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. They just ended up being the same as everyone else. There was an opportunity to stand out, to stand for something different, but they just blended in. They just blended in with all the other nations in the world around them. And again, I thought, how can they get it so wrong? How can they get it so wrong? And then God challenged me about all the ways in which I've chosen to blend in. I've chosen not to stand out and to stand for something that I knew God had called for me to be doing. Um, well, I'm, I'm aware of time, so I'm going to keep, keep moving. But I just want to focus on this. Are we willing to stand out? Are we willing to say, I, I'm, I'm the son, I'm the daughter of the king. I stand for something different. I don't just want to blend in. And what ultimately makes us different? Is it a sense of, well, we've got a, a set of rules that we need to obey, abide by? Or is it the fact that we've been given such, such reason for hope that we can celebrate the fact that we are saved and that our value lies in the king of kings, in the creator of this earth? So Rehoboam is causing his kingdom to live in great sin. Let's see how that turns out. Verses 25 to, if you could just read uh, 3 to 31 for me. Yeah. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields and afterwards they returned them to the guard room. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama. She was an Ammonite. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. Cool. Thanks, Jacob. So, Egypt attacks Judah. Judah seemingly doesn't put up much of a fight because they just leave with all of their belongings. And in verses 26 and 27, it talks about how Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace the gold shields. It feels very much like Rehoboam ends up making a cheap replacement of something that Solomon originally intended to honor God. God doesn't ask us for a cheap replacement of what, of what he's asking. 
And often I was thinking, hmm, what does a cheap replacement look like? Is it that maybe God's telling me to love my neighbors, but I'm just going to focus on reading the Bible? Or God's telling me to be generous with my time, but I don't really want to do that, but I tithe, so it's okay. Even good things that God tells us to do can become cheap replacements for the the things that he's actually asking of us. So again, something I really want you to ask God to to search for in you. Is there any areas where you've made a cheap replacement of something that God's asking of you? Ask him to reveal that to you. So Rehoboam, he comes to an end and his son Abijah succeeds him as king. And as I finish this chapter and I come to conclude, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just a sad story. Just two kingdoms that totally fall apart because these two guys choose to turn their backs on God. So what am I saying as I conclude? As I was asking God, as I've kind of, as I've went through it, I thought, what, what are you saying? And I, I actually think there's an invitation for us. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, they were both given these kingdoms in different ways by God. Jeroboam risen up as an adversary and Rehoboam as the ancestor of David in that lion. But their own terrible decisions, continuous terrible decisions, leads to the destruction of their own kingdoms and their lives. In different ways, they felt the need to fortify, protect themselves, put on an act, a pretense, and destruction's a result. And I just felt like God was saying to me, Nick, you don't have to try and build up your own little empire or kingdom and try and protect yourself. I'm inviting you into my kingdom. I'm the king of kings, and I welcome you. And there is such freedom. We're invited to be a part of God's kingdom. We don't need to try and put on a pretense or do the things that that we feel that we can, like the cheap replacement kind of stuff. God, he sees us at our worst. When I was still an enemy of God, his son laid down his life for me. And I can celebrate that. God is inviting us in to celebrate that. That's an invitation for us all, if we choose to believe it. We don't have to build up our own little personal kingdoms. We can lay everything down, be invited into God's kingdom, and experience true freedom and true joy. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.